Hello and welcome to Now Fear This with Becky and Marie, the podcast about all the things that scare the shit out of us and a few things that don't. Becky, how are you today? What are you fearing? Oh my gosh, I'm fearing the brand new fear. And it was part of something that you experienced today. A new fear. I, I sent you a screenshot that I didn't mean to send to you. You know, I'm talking oh, about. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah. And I'm going to describe a little about what I'm talking about. I fear that I have some weird stalker. Really? <laughs> so I have a blog, voraciousvoyager.com, and somebody went to the trouble of creating insulting email addresses using my name to subscribe to my blog. You know what? When you sent this to me, I didn't even read it because I was like, this is not for me. Do you know what Isn't I mean? That? Yes. Now, I don't know that I want you to read it because I don't know if this person listens to this. I really don't. <laughs> But this person subscribed to my blog and they decided to insult me and they went to the trouble of creating email addresses using the terrible names and words and and that's their version of hurting my feelings I don't know but I'm like and, and I'm gonna hold some things back like the police do in an investigation but I will tell you this yeah. I I know time zone they're in mm-hmm and I know what time it was sent. <laughs> don't say I'm out loud. I don't want to encourage people because it's really fucking weird. Y'all, if you want to insult me, don't like make up weird email addresses. But it's like, get a hobby. What are you doing? I, I want to start doing like the opposite. I'm going to make some like ones that are like Becky's farts smell like unicorns. Gmail.com. Gmail.com. Becky can do no wrong. No, I'm laughing about it because I have a lot of reasons I'm laughing about it. First, I get, here's the weird part for me. Okay. I get, you can hate me. You can hate me. Like people do, I'm sure. Mm. But just don't listen to my show. Don't go to my blog. <laughs> if you hate my guts, like this person went to the trouble, not once, not twice, but three times at one in the morning to do this. Have you watched the league? You should watch it because you and Curtis love football. It's about a fantasy football league. It's really funny. But they I'll were start watching that. If you start watching Ted Lasso, we did start Ted Lasso. We couldn't get past the first episode. Why? It wasn't funny. Oh my God, you're the only one. <laughs> it was supposed to be a comedy, right? I like I literally. I was wondering who the person is who wouldn't like that show, and you're it. I, I like literally laughed. I didn't laugh one time in the first episode. Not even one time. Yeah, I don't know. Should I? I Will it get, does it get better? Well, I'm not going to try and convince you because then if you still hate it, I'll end up hating you. <laughs> That's a risk I'm not willing to take. You're going to hate me. No, but I would really yeah. have to question everything I know about you. <laughs> oh, wow. That's gosh. It's a risk. It's a risk. Well, anyway, when somebody's like a little off, they refer to them as a shit sipping frittata. <laughs> shit sipping frittata. Okay. Yeah. So Is I was like, maybe that can email be address. One. Becky's a shit sipping for Tata. <laughs> <At> Gmail. <laughs> at gmail.com. No, I'm going to make it at AOL.com. <laughs> so anyway, that's my, uh, that's my funny fear is that there's somebody who hates me enough to insult me via their own email address. <laughs> so I don't know what to make of that. I got to admit though, it's, weird. it's pretty creative. It's, what but I don't want to encourage the person I don't think they listen to the show um 
I just, I just, various reasons. I it just doesn't seem like they do. I'm going to admit it. Uh, it's me. I'm the one that made the, you're emotion. the one. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, I know because it, it wouldn't it be funny head. though, if I was like secretly undermining, was, I don't like your other blog. You need to dedicate all your time to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We'll see if this other blog flies. <laughs> okay. Uh, what are you? hearing today well you know last episode I, I had talked to you a little bit about some of my fears currently in LA with just I think everyone's trying to figure out in the aftermath of COVID how to deal with certain problems and one of the solutions has been defund the police and just let everything go and it's not working it's just leading no. to increased crime and no. it's really been in the news a lot with our, our new district attorney wanting to let a lot of people go from prison early to kind of clear out the prison system. And a lot of convicted murderers on the list of people to be let go. Can I ask about that? Yeah. Is there any explanation as to why you would ever let a violent criminal go? Why not just let the nonviolent criminals go? Right, so this is, this ties into the topic. I want to talk about okay. possibly the most famous case of someone being not only let go from prison once, but twice, who's a sadistic, violent killer, and that's Kenneth Allen McDuff. And I think after we talk about what he did and what happened, we can kind of draw some conclusions okay. about that. And the other thing that I, I want to emphasize is, as we're doing this in LA, this isn't the first time this has been done, this idea that we're going to clear out the prison system to try and make up for injustice, you know? Right. So like it's a noble goal, but you got to figure out a way to do it that keeps people safe too. Exactly. So, but anyway, I don't want to get off onto a, a rant. Instead, I want to talk about Kenneth Allen McDuff. So for those of you who don't know who Kenneth Allen McDuff is, he's a Texas serial killer who ended up getting convicted of crimes three different times and getting paroled early three different times. And each time his crimes became more and more heinous. He started in the 1960s. So I think we have to kind of go all the way back to the 1960s when he was a teenager in high school. And uh, a bunch of this information comes from an article called Free to Kill. Texas uh, Monthly, baby. I'm looking yeah, at it right Texas now. Monthly. Y'all should subscribe, by the way, to Texas Monthly. It is $15 for the digital for the whole year. You could go to all these archives and it's a phenomenal publication. And their writing is, you want to learn how to be a good writer, read their writing. Skip Hollinsworth and all these writers. Sorry, that's They're my really great. Gary yeah, Cartwright is this author and he's so good. Okay. Yeah. All right. Hold on. I'm going to a different article because I kind of want to tell this chronologically. And okay. Kenneth Allen McDuff came from a family in this town called Rosebud. Rosebud is really close to Waco, Texas. The McDuff family was known as being kind of weird. The mom was pretty domineering. They were Assembly of God. I think they were church going people. They weren't I think it's poor. Assembly of God, yeah. Assembly mm -hmm. of God, yeah. Mm -hmm. They weren't poor. They were middle class. It wasn't like they were criminals. They weren't. They were regular people in the neighborhood. They just had this sort of bullying way about them. So they would kind of muscle people to get their own way. And the way they treated their two sons, they had two daughters and two sons, was that their sons could do no wrong. So if one of their sons did something to the police or, or to the school, it would always be 
they would attack them and say, no, you're doing this or you're doing that. Now, meanwhile, Kenneth was like one of those kids in school. You almost think of like that movie that I brought up a while back. We need to talk about Kevin. He was just completely antisocial from the get-go. He was constantly doing things to, to put people off kilter. Like they gave an example in the article that if he made a bad grade on something, he would just like hold up the paper in the class and like make jokes about how he made a zero on the test and nobody thought it was funny. Or if everybody was like laughing at a joke or talking, he'd just walk up and start going, ha, 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 you know, like real psychotically until everyone stopped talking and then he would just stare at them. So there's a difference between being a psychopath and psychotic. Right. I will tell you, those descriptions give me chills because there's nothing as an educator or even as a parent, once that person has that, you're not undoing that. That person is not feeling emotions like a normal person. They're not having remorse. They are not human the way that we are all human. And even as a teenager, it can happen. People can be that way by the time they're teenagers. And you need to start looking around for the neighborhood dogs and cats that have disappeared because he's right. chopping them up. Right. So I mean, what's a, I'm not that familiar with like IQ testing. What would you consider a high IQ? Well, literally the over 100 and I think you're considered a quote-unquote genius if you're over 135. Okay. So apparently Kenneth had a IQ of 92. Okay. So they're saying he wasn't the brightest guy in class. The average, I think, is 100. So still, he's way below that. Okay. Yeah. So the, the article says he did a lot to draw um, attention to his negative impulses. And so that the laughing thing, uh, they would say... This is a quote. What one classmate remembers most is Macduff's maniacal laugh, usually at something that no one else thought was funny, and how it was instant, like turning a light on and off. The laugh would dissolve into a glare so hard and cold it stopped conversation. That's a vivid description. I can just see it, right? Can you just see and hear it right now? Like what that classroom was like? Because Mm -hmm. that guy, that level of malevolent energy he takes over the classroom. The teacher is not in control of that classroom. Right. Uh, Kenneth was a big kid and then eventually became a very big man. He was like over six feet tall, 200 pounds. He wasn't fat. He was just like a big guy. And he was kind of testing out his bigness and his power. He was bullying everybody in the school. And at one point he came out against this guy, Tommy Salmon. Well, Tommy was like the big football star in the school. And he decided it's kind of like punching the biggest guy in prison. You know, he decided oh, yeah. okay. he was going to go after Tommy. So he shoved him in the hallway and basically told Tommy he was like a chicken shit or something. And Tommy had had it with this guy's behavior. So Tommy was like, all right, we're going to meet under this one drainage ditch and have a fight. So the whole school, it was like, Tommy and Kenneth are going to fight in the drainage ditch. So like everybody showed up to the drainage ditch. And apparently, even though Kenneth is really big, he was kind of a weak guy. And Tommy just took him down hard. And after that, it, it kind of deflated Macduff and he stopped picking on people and was just kind of like a shell around campus. If I were that football player, I'd be watching my back. Well, and that's something when he gets lit let out of prison the second time everybody in rosebud is like worried you know right but, that's what that, i thought he's let him get away with that so 
sometime in the fall of 1964, when Kenneth was about 17, mm-hmm. he basically just abandoned school and just started breaking into buildings and, and robbing houses. Great. And they say in the article, prowling for sex and breaking Prowling, into prowling. Okay, there's a word, as in rape? Are we well, I can't remember the last time I prowled around asking people to have sex with me. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> that was a weird part of the article. So I was yeah, like, like, is he going to bars to find women or is he prowling in houses that he's breaking into rape? That's people, what I mean. So, Are you yeah. exactly? <laughs> um, yeah, that was a little weird. Yeah. But his brother, Big Lonnie, I think they called him. Lonnie was also a troubled kid. And when Lonnie grew into a man, he ended up dying early because he was having an affair with a married woman and the husband came home and shot and killed Lonnie. But before that, Lonnie was Kenneth's main friend in life and they would exchange stories and talk. And one night, according to this article- Talk about all the girls they raped? What, I mean, well, like a- you're gonna love this. This is like uh-huh. really crazy brotherly bonding story. Okay. <laughs> but uh, Kenneth came home and confided to Lonnie that he had raped a woman and cut her throat and left her for dead in a ditch. And Lonnie told him, just go to bed and forget about it. I know that's what I do when people tell me that they've just raped and killed somebody. <laughs> yeah. I mean, don't, don't stress about it. Yeah, I mean, the last the time you came done. to me and told me about your slitting someone's throat in a yeah. ditch, I just said, you know what, Marie? I, I, I just think you should go to bed. Yeah. Just, just go to bed. You know, I have a coworker that was complaining because we keep saying this a lot at work, the phrase, it is what it is. You know, oh, it makes me nuts. That I know. Makes me nuts. It's like, yeah, I just raped and killed a woman. Yeah, it is what it is. It is what it is. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's yeah. not the only time one should ever utter that phrase. Okay. Right. So not long after that, people had been on to McDuff. The police had been on to him. And so they finally he's were still able- in high school and he's prowling around breaking, 17, and breaking yeah. women. 17, yeah. So who did he kill? Who was the girl in a ditch? We don't what know. Her? We don't know. Oh. So oh. this is a question that always it's kind of like who's that serial killer we don't like because he not only was a serial killer but lied about killing all those women. Um, and really lucas yes it's hard to know right if mm. mcduff at this point really killed people or if he was just bragging okay. but i do know that you'll find that i think behind the scenes he was targeting a lot of sex workers too and probably most of those fell through the cracks and people never even noticed it okay but a lot of these killers have a knack for targeting people that don't have any connections and then so the police were able to nail him on a bunch of burglary charges and when i say a bunch of burglary charges i mean like 12 and there were all sorts of other things attached to those charges so brady pamplin and other central texas lawmen had been handling mcduff since he was a teenager and had seen flashes of his sadistic nature and complete contempt for rules of society think he'd wear a mask on a southwest airlines flight (laughs) he'd probably be like he'd probably wear a mask and he'd be like yeah covid is dangerous (laughs) or he's like i'm gonna protect myself and you from this virus delta variant fuck no says kenneth mcduff i don't know where those women have been that i've been killing (laughs) all right jeez 
Right. So McDuff was assessed penalties totaling 52 years. That's for the burglary. But because he was only 18, the sentences were assessed concurrently instead of consecutively. McDuff was back on the street in less than 10 months. 10 months instead of how many years? 50? 52. Marie. Eight months after he was paroled, McDuff went on to create one of his periodic rampages and became famous for what are known as the broomstick murders. So once he got out, he was back to his burglarizing and prowling for sex, whatever that means. But while he was... Maybe that's the name of the episode. (laughs) Prowling for sex, whatever that means. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. When McDuff got out of jail, at this point, he's 19 years old. So it says, though prison had not taught Macduff how to make friends, it had taught him how to attract smaller, weaker sidekicks that he could control through intimidation. And he, like buddy killers that we've talked about in the past, enjoyed having a witness to his debauchery. You know, that's interesting because our very first episode was on serial killing pairs, duos, and the frequency with which pairs of killers shows up is really alarming. Now, this guy, I think, was going to kill without a pair. Right. But whoever his pair was, his other guy, that guy probably wouldn't. Right? And and I want to talk because Kenneth finds multiple people to pair up with. Oh. This is just his first pair. And so I want to warn you guys that there is going to be some graphic stuff here. And I went back and forth as to whether or not I would reveal some of the more graphic details of these murders. But some of it is important because it'll get to the larger point at the end, which is, can we redeem people like this? Can people like this get out on parole, right? So before you go on, I will confess, I read half of the Texas Monthly article. I know a tiny bit. I didn't read the whole half. I read every other paragraph because I wanted to have an idea. And one of the paragraphs I took a screenshot of, if you're not going to quote it, I want to quote it. You can tell me if you were going to read it, okay? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. So... There were two U.S. Marshals who were, I think their dads were Texas Rangers or something like that. But everyone who was in law enforcement knew McDuff. And one of them said that he was as tough as any lawman who had ever lived, a legendary figure. Texas Ranger before World War II served as sheriff in Falls County for 30 years. He had stood toe-to-toe with the worst society could spit up, but his voice quivered and his hands shook when he talked about Kenneth McDuff. Yeah. So if you were going to say that, I'll let you say it. I'm glad you read that. And... What you were saying about the graphic details, I think that's important to this story. I don't think it's necessary to every story, but I think it's important to this story. So yes. Yes, exactly. And that quote that you just read too, the guy who said it was the one who arrived at the scene of the broomstick murders. Okay. And so you've got this like seasoned law person that when he called it in was shaking and crying and his voice was quivering. So that's that's how bad. I mean, he was in World War II. He was a fucking Texas Ranger. Sorry, we KY'd off of the ramp. Now we're, what's the other word we're going to use? Or maiden Maiden heading. Or maiden (laughs) heading. All right. So he makes this friend, Roy Dale Green. Of course, because this guy's going to end up being a killer, we got to know his middle name. His name has to be either Dale or Wayne in the middle. (laughs) Right, right. So basically, he would hang out with Roy and tell him about his exploits. So I don't know what this says about Roy. Like when we find out more about Roy, it's possible that Roy got in over his head 
but, but Roy, Roy had a room temperature IQ too. I'm sorry, but right. oftentimes they will find someone really weak-minded to... Roy's got problems and Roy made some bad decisions for sure. Okay. That will, will make you wonder about him. But Green was two years younger than Kenneth and was mesmerized by Macduff's tales and sometimes exhibitions of sadistic sex. One of Macduff's more brutal amusements, which he demonstrated once in a bedroom of Green's mother's home, was pretending to pin a girl to the floor and squirting a tube of deep hot into her vagina. A what? Deep hot? Um, Deep heat? Deep heat. I'm sure it's been gay or icy hot or something. Something icy hot. That's what it sounds like. Okay. And then. Oh. Yeah. It's creepy. Okay. Uh, Kenneth bragged that he had raped and strangled several women in his time. Killing a woman's like killing a chicken. They both squawk, is something that he said. That's that's awesome. So this is another example of Macduff confessing to someone that he's killed other people. Who are We don't know if it's true or not. Right. We don't know or if he was just bragging. And none of those people went, you know what, Kenneth? I think I'm going to go out with somebody else tonight. You're on your own. Uh. I'm going to go to the cops and just to have a little combo. I mean, like you're hanging out. You're hanging out with your new friend. And he's like, hey, I'm going to show you how to hold a woman down. And, you know. And bragging about the people he's killed? I don't think I'd hang out with him again. I'm just saying. I mean, I don't know that I would. That's a weird new friend demo that would probably scare me off. <laughs> is that in your dating profile on Tinder? Yikes. <laughs> okay, so this is what's so weird. It's got to be really creepy when you have someone in your life like Kenneth Allen McDuff. And they kill women, but for whatever reason, they choose not to kill you. You've got to feel like you've dodged a bullet of some sort. He and Green go to visit a girl from his church. Then they leave. And then as they're driving home, Kenneth tells Green that he's looking for someone to basically rape. And he sees a teenage girl and two teenage boys standing by a car. Total strangers. Standing near a baseball field. In a 1955 Ford, purely by chance, Macduff selected the three victims. So he drove up, he got out of the car, he pulled out a pistol, a 38, and he made the three teenagers get into the trunk of his vehicle. So if you were, like we talked about in our last episode, which is uh, part two of No Seriously, Where the Fuck Did They Go? If you are with other people, you, you feel safer, right? I bet you that girl would never have imagined she wasn't safe with two teenage boys with her, that she would have any problems or reason to be scared in this small town. I'm so looking, young. Oh my God, I'm looking at the picture of these victims. Like, the little boy. But they're teenagers. So Edna Sullivan was 16. Uh, one of the victims was her boyfriend, 17-year-old Robert Brand. Okay. And Robert's 15-year-old cousin, Mark Dunham. Oh, honey. Yeah, they, they just look like babies. They're just they babies. Do. They do. So talking to her boyfriend on the side of the road. Ah. Okay. He gets out with a gun. Macduff demanded that the boys hand over their billfolds and then forced all three into the trunk of the car and locked them in. Also, he told Green, like, look, they've seen my face, so you know we're going to have to kill him. And then they drove to a remote location. And then when he opened the trunk of the car, they said, the young lady needs to get out of the car. She stepped out of the trunk. 
And then he immediately shot both boys, Mark and Robert, in the head. In fact, in front of her. In front of her. And one of the boys, he even grabbed his head up a second time after he shot him and shot him a second time in the head. So he's a bad person. So then I won't go into like a lot of detail, but basically they raped this girl repeatedly. And Green claims that he was forced to rape her. How are you forced? Force someone to rape someone. How do you do that? So I've read this article doesn't mention it, but some articles say that they raped her with a broomstick handle. But I mean, they were just torturing this girl to death, torturing her. Then, uh, then we came to the point where they, you know, he decided he was going to kill her and he wasn't sure what to kill her with. And apparently Green offered up his belt. Oh, Green. Okay, great. Yeah, great. But Macduff was like, no, he got the broomstick again. He choked her with the broomstick until her next time. So then they both just went to bed. (laughs) <laughs> they went to a convenience store and got some coca-colas and then sure. they... so apparently the next afternoon green was riding around with friends and lost his shit and basically confessed it was friends okay okay yeah and then they went to the police oh confessed. somebody has their wits about them finally <laughs> he confessed and he became the star witness against mcduff and that was okay. that so you can imagine obviously mcduff's defense is that green was the yep the guy pointing the finger pointing the finger yep but apparently i mean this guy green was sentenced like 25 years in prison served it got released i think he ended up in a mental institution i think he tried to kill his mother they say in the article that the guy was like mentally disturbed from taking part in this but i just like all these stories where people participate in heinous stuff like this, it's like, you can't put it off on someone else. You have a choice. They always say, well, I was afraid so-and-so was going to kill me. You're a grown-ass man. You'd have to kill me before I kill somebody. I'm sorry. You'd have to kill me. Yeah. And I know that. I know myself enough to know that. If you said to me, Becky, all right, you got a choice. I kill you or you kill your neighbor. I'd be like, all right, you kill me. I'm not fucking murdering somebody for my life. I'm not. Not but murder. Also, but also people seem to get away with this reason, right? Because like, let's say I have control over you, Becky, and I tell you, you have to do this or I'm going to kill you. We're relatively the same size. We've established I'm two inches taller. <laughs> there you go. So I could be like, officer. I waited an hour to bring that up. Officer, do you notice she's two inches taller than me? <laughs> She'll tell you. Just give her enough time. She'll yeah. tell you. Um, no, I don't understand it at all i've never understood that and it's not a defense to me it's not but i will tell you this and this is really 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 creepy more than once in the murder shows that we've watched people on the shows have said people who have killed people have said it's not as big a deal as you think it is and that is terrifying to me because i think how could it not be the biggest fucking deal in your life but apparently it's not for people who do it Okay, so here's the thing. I'm going to go out on a limb. I'm going to I'm going to play devil's advocate here, right? Please. And I'm going to say that if I had it in mind, we'll keep it between me and you because because of, of the like height slams and stuff. What yeah. if I'm going to say like <laughs> I'm going to do a new email. Becky is a heightist or she's a heightist. Ah, I'm a shorter. I'm a I'm a what is somebody who's like discriminating? You're a height supremacist. Short, That's it. A height supremacist at gmail.com. 
white supremacist at gmail.com. Perfect. Um, so I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that if I'm going to poison you or I'm going to just shoot you in the head or something like that, it is going to be pretty easy. Like, I'm just saying if I have it in my mind that I'm going to do that, these things that are like non-personal, like I wait till you're sleeping and I shoot you in the head. That doesn't seem like a hard task. That's I mean, how my uncle got murdered. He was yeah. shot in the head in the middle of the night. Very impersonal. Mm -hmm. However, doing all the stuff that Kenneth Allen McDuff did, that's like a lot of effort. Okay, I don't disagree. But the part that is really scarier is even the torture stuff where psychological torture for this poor Edna and where she was raped and then raped again and then he was quote-unquote forced to rape her. I also fear that not as difficult as you think to detach yourself from the pain you inflict on people. Well, sure. And in part, I say that because of the Milgram experiments and Nazi Germany, mm -hmm. wherein, and for those of you who don't know what that is, you should you know Google it, that people are capable of torturing other people and inflicting pain on other people as long as they tell themselves that they're not the ones who are in charge. It's not right. their decision. And so I'm not saying there's an excuse. The fucking dude should go to prison. You know who needs to spend their life in prison? People who rape people on order go to fucking prison. Like you're done. I'm, I'm done with you. I don't care why you rape this girl and witness murder. I don't care. You should still be in prison. But I, I just am saying, it's, I think I'm scared it's easier than we think. Um, fear is not the right word for me. I'm just accepting of it because... I was talking to somebody about heaven and hell, and I was like, let's just think about hell logically for a minute. If I'm burning for a gazillion years in hell, it's not going to be torture after a while. I'm going to get used to it, right? I mean, in the beginning, I might pass out and feel miserable, but then eventually I'm just going to be like, yep, I'm burning. It's been going on for like a million years. <laughs> this, is, this is me. You know, it's um, my new gig. This is my new gig. I burn all day long. It, it used to really burn, and now it's just uh, it's just a tingling, warm yeah. feeling. You know, okay. but I think that we get used to things. You know, so, yes. You know, in certain cultures where it's okay to rape women, where it's okay to abuse and subjugate women, people just grow up, and that's what they do. But also, Macduff had no conscience. Macduff was like a psychopath, right? Yes, he had no conscience. And when he decided that he wanted Green, who I don't know his first name, I don't care, to contribute or, you know, witness, part of him doing his crimes apparently was him getting off on somebody else watching it, experiencing it with him and participating in it with him. But to me, Green also needs to be in prison for the rest of his fucking life. Because if you're that fucking weak that you will rape someone on order, I don't want you in society. You don't have a part here. You're done. Right. So Macduff gets the death penalty and goes to jail. Well, of course, Kenneth Macduff was a model prisoner. In fact, the prison system in Texas was so out of control at this time. It was kind of like the wardens were just picking. So about what year are we talking? 65, you said? Or is that we're in the mid 60s? Um, he was in jail from like 65 to sometime in the 80s. So, it's so he was sentenced to death, but it was commuted because of the Supreme Court decision. Exactly. 
Okay, exactly. sorry. Yeah. Okay. You can say it if I didn't mean to step on you. No, your... no, no. I like it. I'm when just you... putting history together. I like it when you discover the wheel as I go. So that's okay. nice. It's like okay. I'm seeing the revelations. Okay. Anyway, so Macduff works his way up and now he's like the leader of his cell block. And the wardens allow these model prisoners to run their cell block as long as they keep it in line. So it says hard cases like Macduff are given maximum leeway as long as they are not putting a knife into someone or openly smuggling drugs. They can do almost anything. In that position, a man of Macduff's talents would have enjoyed not only the blessing of the wardens, but substantial clout among the inmates, meaning, among other things, Macduff was able to influence which inmate was assigned to him as his cellmate. Oh, so God. there was a guy in the Aryan Brotherhood who had done okay. something to offend the Aryan Brotherhood and got kicked out of it. And he was basically in a situation where he's gonna get killed. So he gets put in productive custody as Kenneth Allen Macduff's cellmate, handpicked by Kenneth Allen Macduff. So now okay. he's Macduff's, what they call it is a punk, but basically Macduff just like rapes this guy and makes him his <laughs> sex slave. And the guy is also carrying drugs for Macduff and his butt and all this stuff. You know, I watched exactly 90 seconds of that show Oz and the scene I watched made me puke. It had to do with dudes raping other dudes. And I couldn't believe that show stayed on the air and that anybody would ever watch that show. The very notion that you are living in a locked in room with a person who rapes is you. assaulting you all the time. Yeah. Is, is so, I know people make jokes about prison rape, which I don't think are funny. And if somebody does that in front of me, I will call them out. But that is so disturbing that if you don't find that disturbing, I kind of don't know what to do with you. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's and so I, disturbing. What, what disturbs me the most about all of it is, okay, you're going to jail to pay for your crimes. Our system is not a rehabilitation system. It's no. a, purely a punitive, punitive. Mm -hmm. punishment system. So there's so many things about it that are screwed up. But the system itself is supposed to be punishment. But yet when you get into the system... It's a concentration of crime and criminal activity, and you have no protection because literally the guards, everybody, anybody can do anything they want to you and you have no recourse. Did you yeah. watch Orange is the New Black? I did. I also watched Oz. I think I stopped watching when the girl got raped in the van. I was oh. like, yeah, I think I'm done here. I know it exists. I just, I don't want it to be a part of my consciousness. So, anyway. Right, right. Well, I don't know why the article felt the need to tell us what this is, but it's just kind of a funny word. It says, as a punk, this guy provided whatever Macduff required in the way of sex and drugs, which he scrolled away in a red balloon inserted in his rectum. Apparently that's called keistering. Oh. So if you want to know, because we've talked about storing things in body cavities, if you want to know what the proper term for that is, it's keistering. So like... So Hey, I forgot my purse. Time. Are you keistering uh, some I know, like, what are you keistering today? <laughs> anyway. All right. So we're moving on in time, right? He's serving the sentence. And of course, you know, because of the Supreme Court decision, the death penalty went away for him. Yeah, Throughout yeah. the years, he, Macduff had begun to improve himself by taking college credit courses. He went up before the parole board many, many times. He tried to represent evidence that Green was the guy that did it, so on and so forth. And then when Macduff came up for special review in September 1989, the 
the parole board member cast the deciding vote that freed McDuff? Can I ask a question? Uh-huh. Do they indicate whether or not that parole board was informed of the crimes this human being had inflicted on people? They had to have been. I don't care if the guy's getting a college degree. He's a fucking, he murdered three kids. So I think matter more than that. I think this is what happens is the crime happened in 1965. Now we're in 1989. The further you get away from the crime, you see an older man. He was what, in his 40s? I just, I feel people forget about the crime and they just think about the problem in front of them. Prison's overcrowded. This guy is doing all these good things. A lot of people are very naive too, right? So we all want to believe in the good of people. So when the Silence of the Lambs was being made, the actor that played the head of the FBI. uh, Scott Glenn? Scott Glenn. There we go. Yes. So Scott Glenn was talking with um, John Douglas, who was an advisor on the film. And, And Scott Glenn and him were having a philosophical argument about whether or not people are redeemable. And Scott Glenn was saying, I feel like everyone is redeemable on some level, blah, blah, blah. I think this is in the special features of Silence of the Lambs. I think that's where I saw it. And then John Douglas says, I want to play some tapes of serial killers for you to listen to. And after hearing these tapes, he totally changed his mind. So I think that it definitely takes a certain personality to expose yourself to this. And for some people, they just don't want to know. And they fall into this trap of thinking that people can change. They people can't. can change. These people can't. Right. Not these, these people. Right. That's the thing to think about. So <laughs> the beginning of the article, they start with the quote that you read about the officer coming to the scene of the crime on the broomstick murders and Basically, the community of Rosebud finding out that in 1989, Kenneth Allen McDuff was being set free from jail. And they were saying people were putting bars on their windows. They were shoving furniture in front of their doors at night. The whole town was mortified. In fact, one of the townspeople said that they got a a message that was like somebody shooting off a gun. They were pretty sure it was Kenneth Allen McDuff. People were getting threats. Like the whole town was mortified. And the thing is, and I mentioned this in our last episode, the thing that I remember as somebody who lived in Texas in the 90s was that people knew that people were going to die, that bodies were going to start showing up. They just didn't know when. And it turns out three days into his or whatever, however long it was, yes, bodies start showing up. Where Kenneth McDuff went, Bodies start piling up. Yes. He started killing people immediately after getting out of jail. I mean, this guy is like such a bad dude. Like one of the ways he was making money, he was going around beating up drug dealers and like stealing their drugs and money. So this guy like gives zero fucks. So this starts to get a little personal for me because I lived in Waco. I did attend and get a degree from Texas State Technical College. So my dad worked there for many years. I knew you went to McLennan, but I didn't know you went to... I did. So you know I have like so many degrees. Come on. I know. You went to all the colleges. I went to every college in Texas. My sister also has a degree from Texas State Technical College. So when Kenneth McDuff got out of prison, he moved to Waco and enrolled in that college? 
So no, not in the beginning. In the beginning, he's kind of roaming around. He lived in Temple. He lived in Waco. He lived in Rockdale, Bellmead, Tyler, Dallas. Like he moved Which around. Which is where I went to college in Tyler. Yeah. He was where you went to college and where I went to college? Yeah. Shit. Okay. So we are was- lucky we survived our college years, huh? Yeah, it says here he had no means of support, driving new cars, spending freely, robbing crack dealers. That was how so he, he was Omar, which you probably didn't watch The Wire. Um, I, did. I love The Wire. It's one of my favorites. Oh, okay. So he was Omar, but not cool. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So there are several killings of sex workers that happened. And at the time, they didn't put it together, but. In the spring of 1991, McDuff enrolled in Texas State Technical College and moved to Waco, Texas. He was living on the dormitory on campus. And I got to tell you, I have been in those dormitories. This is just a side note. I'm going to, can I side note for a minute? You can. You can veer off the Maidenhead Expressway. (laughs) Thank you. You're welcome. I was not prepared for Texas State Technical College. I was not prepared for the group of people there. There's a big mix. Um, there were a lot of people there that were like ex-cons or people that were starting their life over again because these were trades that they could get into. So I would liken it to be almost like as a woman, if you like go into the oil field or you decide to become a long haul trucker, it's like a mix of that kind of like rough and tumble, hardened male presence and then college students. Okay. And there's (laughs) dorms. And there's dorms. And he's living in the dorms and he starts, what, murdering people? Yes. So a woman named Regina Moore had been seen kicking and screaming in the cab of McDuff's red pickup truck as it ran through a police checkpoint. Although the police did look up McDuff several days later and question him, nothing came of the incident. He beat up and nearly blinded a fellow student at TSTC and threatened several others and still nobody reported him to the police. Oh, wow, wow. So while at TSDC, he made a friend, this guy, Hank Worley, another one of those sort of weak-minded sidekicks. He was a 34-year-old concrete worker who hung out with McDuff. And what's really weird is this guy actually had a 14-year-old daughter that lived with him. Yeah. At some time late in the evening of March 1st, 1992, Melissa Northrup was kidnapped from her convenience store where she worked. Now that convenience store is right across from TSTC and that's where all the students go to like get snacks and stuff like that. Oh my God. The girl who worked there was kidnapped? Yeah. So, I mean. They found her or what? what? Yeah. So her body was found weeks later, found and floating in a gravel pit in Dallas County near the spot where the killer had left her car. A few weeks after her disappearance, police discovered a naked and badly decomposed body of Valencia K. Johnson in a shallow grave in a wooded area behind TSTC. Joshua was one of the missing prostitutes. And I'm saying prostitute because that's what it says in the article. She was last seen alive on the night of February 24th on the TSTC campus looking for McDuff's dormitory room. At this point, the police are definitely looking for McDuff. Apparently when he started his murder spree, it was a finals week and he didn't show up to any of his finals. He just decided to start murdering. No, that's one choice. That's a lot of pressure during finals week. Sure. Yeah. Especially if you've been trolling around raping and not studying, you know. Trolling, you're prowling for sex instead (laughs) of studying. Yeah. How many times did you and I just prowl around for sex instead of study, Marie? I mean, 
I can't even count. <laughs> Gosh. The first big break came when they cornered McDuff's one-time punk in the parking lot outside of Poor Boy's Lounge in Temple. I don't even know what to do with that sentence. I know, that's like, why I'm, I'm reading. spinning around like the exorcist with that sentence. So the guy that he lived with in the prison that he was raping constantly is now released as well. And keistering, yes. And he's released, and now he's standing around in a parking lot. At the Poe Boys Lounge. Well, who, who hasn't done that? I mean, let's be honest. So after some persuasion, he told the police about a woman drug dealer in Harker Heights. I like how it's a woman drug dealer. It's like he'd say female doctor. Right. <laughs> can you imagine? <laughs> a female Women, drug dealer. Anything you can do, I can do better. Right. Who in turn directed them to a thug in Dallas and established that McDuff had been in Austin five days before 28-year-old Colleen Reed was abducted from a car wash west of downtown. And for those of you who don't know, Dallas and Austin are about three hours apart on I-35 and on the way there, you go through this Waco area. So yeah. he's just like I-35 corridor murderer? Exactly. Yeah, they do mention that like most of his murders were happening on the I-35 corridor. He, he was just rolling up and down I-35. Yeah. Wow. Um. In the case of Colleen Reed, the description that Austin police have is from this guy, Hank Worley. That was his new Roy Green. So this woman is at a car wash at night, washing her car by herself. I was just talking to some friends about how many women on I Survived or are featured on murder shows. The story begins at a car wash. It's remarkable. Really? Yep. That is interesting. This is the story Worley told police. Four days after Christmas, he rode with McDuff to Austin to look for drugs. They cruised the university area and scouted the bars on 6th Street. Then they crossed Lamar and turned south. That's when McDuff spotted Colleen Reed washing her black Mazda in one of the bays at the car wash on 5th. McDuff parked his Thunderbird in the adjacent bay, disappeared for a moment. When he returned, he had Colleen Reed by the throat, holding her up so that her toes didn't touch the cement floor. How terrifying is that? Fucking asshole. He threw her into the back seat and had Worley control her in the back seat while he drove the car. Oh, okay. When am I going to have people that I get to have control people? When, right. when, when do those people show up in my life? Marie. So they drove around raping and torturing this woman. And basically McDuff dropped Worley off at his hotel room and then drove off with the woman. And Worley asked him, what are you going to do with her? And McDuff grinned. It was one of his signature phrases. I'm going to use her up. Her body hasn't been found. Christ. According to this article, McDuff may have killed as many as nine women, going back to Seraphia Parker, whose body was found near Temple three days after he was paroled. So the, the one that was three days after he was paroled was Seraphia Parker. Those police officers who had experienced him before said, we know he's going to start killing people. We just don't know when. Right. And it was three days. And I think it's more than nine. It's ridiculous that he could stop at nine. So how'd they catch him? So the big break in, in terms of finding him was finding that guy that was his cellmate in prison who spilled the beans. And then the lady drug dealer. The lady. <laughs> yeah. So it was like a chain of underworld people that eventually led to this guy hank worley who was okay. his out of prison punk if you will 
Sure. According to Gary Laverne, he wrote a book called Bad Boy, The True Story of Kenneth Allen McDuff, the most notorious serial killer in Texas history. McDuff is the only person in U.S. history to have been assigned two death row numbers, one for the Robert Brand murder in 1966 and one for Melissa Northrup in 1992. So this is the hometown handlebar. Dallas psychologist Fred Labowitz told a reporter that McDuff has no soul. It seems this incredible lust for evil appeared spontaneously and full-blown. And on November 17, 1998, 32 years after Fort Worth endured the long summer in the shadow of Kenneth Allen McDuff, he was strapped to a gurney to be executed by lethal ejection in Huntsville. Twelve minutes later, wow. after he was pronounced dead, Brenda Solomon, mother of Melissa Northrup, said, I feel wonderful. I know where he was released to. What's the number of dead bodies attributed to him, not counting the rapes? Okay, it says here, law enforcement officials estimate that McDuff had killed after he had been paroled for three murders in 1966 from nine to 14 women. So that's not including the... Not including the broomstick. Yeah. And then not including whatever the stuff he confessed to his friends from his teenage years, if that's true. I don't know. It's, It's a very strange case. And unfortunately, it's one of those things where you go, well... How do you protect yourself from something like this? And I, I just yeah. don't know that you can. And I just think the Ripper in uh, Yorkshire Ripper, the Yorkshire Ripper, yeah, where the women were protesting that maybe the men should stay in. And I agree with the sentiment, but the fact of the matter is, it's like my professor said, you know, men have to worry about being accused of rape as long as women can't walk safely alone at night. That's the trade off. And I just think that. The reality is certain things are just unsafe for women to do by themselves. And even like you said, in some cases, it might even be unsafe for people in pairs. You know, yep. you just never know. But yeah. Um, so when we did the end of our season one, a few months back, we were talking about all of the cases or stories that we wanted to talk about when we started up again. And this was one of the ones that you brought up because we're talking about hometowns. And the fact that your quote unquote close to home murder is this person who is one of the most egregious miscarriages of justice ever is pretty remarkable. Like this case, I don't know that I've, I don't know that anybody's ever heard anything like this where you've got the guy, he's in prison, just Mm -hmm. leave him there. Just fucking leave him there. Because when he's out of prison, He's killing. He's killing. It's, yeah. it's, it's remarkable. It's like, it's remarkable. It just would make the episode way too long. So it's probably a, a separate conversation, but really having a conversation about when someone just can't be let out of jail. Yeah. And things are very convoluted because innocent people get convicted of crimes, but yeah. there, there should be a way to create a benchmark of evidence and say, well, we have these pieces of evidence that are verified and solid we know that this person did it right and unless something new comes forward they can just never be set free that's one of the things that other countries do differently and they get right and one of those things is and i'm not going to name him because i don't fucking care he's a mass murderer the guy who murdered 72 kids on that island um he's a white supremacist and he set off a bomb like at the capital and then went to this island and started murdering kids um, they put him in prison. And one of the things that people in the U.S. were like, I can't believe it. He was sentenced 20 years in prison. That's the maximum sentence. 
However, in that criminal justice system, that 20 years, it's revisited by a panel of people who decide whether or not you're dangerous. And you're given another 20 fucking years, which to me, that system makes more sense than somebody saying, oh, I took an eighth grade mathematics class, and now I think you should let me out. Because from what I understand, people like McDuff pay attention to what the pro board really wants to see, and they start manipulating the system to do that thing and go, look at me, I'm trying to do a thing. And that's not the right thing. The parole board is not evaluating dangerousness. And to me, dangerousness is the most important question when it comes to people who've been murderers. Marie, this is where we started an hour ago. This is from the Daily Mail. By 1989, prison overcrowding made Texas authorities decide that it was safe to give some inmates their freedom. McDuff was among 127 murderers and 20 death row inmates who rode out of jail on a wave of paroles. I don't know why they include these death row people and murderers. Don't let the fucking psychotic murderers go. And it speaks to something that, okay, so you said John Douglas, right? So John Douglas is one of the originators of FBI profiling. Now, it's problematic. It's been proven to not necessarily be, you know, foolproof. I get that. But one of the things he said in his book, Mindhunter, is that when a prisoner who had killed nine women or whatever would go in front of a psychologist, the psychologist would refuse to even know the crimes that were committed. Like, it reminds me of what you're saying about the parole board in Texas at the time. Don't tell me what they did. Have they been in there 15 years? Let them go. It is insane. Yeah. Let the quote-unquote white-collar criminals go. Let the drug-associated nonviolent criminals go. But the fucking people who murder three children out on the street, I can't fathom letting that person out. I can't fathom it. It goes back to, we have systems in our country that need to be reformed and need to be changed, but you can't just throw them out without having a replacement. Exactly. It's like we need to think through just willy-nilly releasing everyone from jail is not going to solve the problem. Getting rid of the police is not going to solve the problem. You know, at one point I thought about being a lawyer, and if I had become a lawyer, I definitely would have been a criminal justice lawyer, probably in the district attorney's office. And I know the mentality in speech and debate, in particular in debate, was you find any way possible to win, even if you come up with ridiculous arguments. But that's the problem, isn't it? Yeah. You will win at all costs. And it's also the problem when it comes to DNA exonerations is that all these DAs go, don't test the blood. I don't want to hear that evidence again because they have to win at all costs when it means keeping someone in prison who may or may not have been guilty. So I think the takeaway is we need to look at the parts of our justice system that are broken and not just throw the baby out with the bathwater because unfortunately, then you have people like Kenneth Allen McDuff, that slip through the cracks again and again. And you have other people that end up in prison for the rest of their life and they didn't do it. So we need to focus on the things that are important. But I do think that we've gone too long. <laughs> I just I would love to talk more about where that boundary is of saying someone okay. has redeeming qualities and can be released versus should never be released again. And I how, just watched a dateline last night that made me say that's somebody who should be released even though they committed first-degree murder. So yes, I absolutely want to talk about this. Yes. So 
You've been listening and now fearless. <laughs> you have listened to us break into a full-blown ramble. Um, we have exited the freeway. And this is the part of the episode where we just scream all our ideas at each other. <laughs> Whether they make sense to the topic or not. Hey, cut us a little slack. We haven't been doing this for a few months. Last week was our first episode after our, like, what, two-month break? Oh, my goodness. I can't believe we even managed to get through it. So thank you for listening to that. And thank you for listening to this, if you've made it all the way through. What am I supposed <laughs> to say? Like, go to our uh, website. The wrap-up. Go to our website. There's lots of cool content. It will change your life. There it is. We got to wrap this baby up. Here, this podcast.com will change your fucking life. I can't believe I've gotten through an episode without telling someone to go fuck themselves. I feel like you had to like drop it in there at the end. It's just an obligation. (laughs) 